America's incredible prosperity was built atop a foundation of free markets and free people. We cannot allow left-wing ideologues to undermine that foundation. But with inflation on the rise and a struggling market, many in America's political class are attempting to recycle their failed socialist ideas. National Review's Capital Record podcast is standing in the gap, providing you with the arguments and analysis you need to defend our economic system. Financier and NRI trustee David Barnson hosts interviews with the nation's top business leaders, entrepreneurs, and financial commentators as they provide a practical and moral vindication of America's capitalist way of life. With guests such as Larry Kudlow, Steve Forbes, and Art Laffer, Capital Record invites you to tune in for top-level economic commentary you can't get anywhere else. Join the conversation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Donald Trump monkey stops the Republican field in polling. Plus, Jim Garrity returns from Ukraine. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the aforementioned sage of Authenticity Woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsor of this episode is Made in Cookware. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear, please... Consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim, to simplify a little bit and exaggerate also a little bit, we have two nomination battles that are both 60-10 fights in the national polling. Biden over Robert Kennedy Jr. and Donald Trump over Ron DeSantis. Yes, uh, Rich. Uh, by the way, it's very good to be back. Uh, when I left, Biden looked like he was not going to face any serious competition for the nomination, and it looked like Donald Trump was well on his way to you know, uh, his share being a larger share than the rest of the field combined. I come back a couple of weeks later, and nothing's changed. Uh, this is not a tremendously exciting primary season. Uh, I was out there and missed the Republican debate, you can tell I was absolutely torn up about that. Um, but it doesn't sound like I missed very much. It doesn't sound like there was much of a game changer. It doesn't sound like the dynamics have changed. Uh, maybe, you know, one of the, to the extent there's been any any momentum or any changes over the course of the year, it has been Ron DeSantis getting closer and closer to the rest of the pack. He's now just barely into single digits in some of these latest national polls. Yes, I know we don't have a national ba- Barely into no. double. Yeah, yeah, barely to double, just, you know, barely ahead of... Uh, it's it's, it's going to be really bad if he's barely into single, which, yeah, which is, yeah, characterizes, yeah. you know, about a quarter of the field. There are, <laughs> yeah, there are a bunch of folks who are, you know, for, aspiring to go from asterisk status to, uh, to 1%. Um, the, yeah, that, uh, you know, that, that DeSantis has done the opposite of catch fire. Uh, we can just debate whether it stems from that. Uh, stumbling start, or whether he didn't help himself in the debate. It was all the it was all the Twitter audio. It was all Musk, told right? you, it's all Elon told Musk. you. <laughs> yes. Eventually, you were proven right. Uh, 
No, but like this is, you know, uh, for those of us who are not fans of Donald Trump, this is a bad sign. Uh, it is also a bad sign that nobody else appears to be really catching fire. Uh, you can make an argument for Ramaswamy, who's gone from from zero to about 7% in the national polls. Uh, and by the way, the polling in this, the early states, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, not looking all that different. Uh, Trump is well ahead. It uh, Right now, at least according to these poll numbers, it appears that Republicans are not interested in having a primary. They know who they want. They're not interested in, they're not watching these debates. They're not shopping around. Um, they are absolutely totally convinced that Trump running a campaign based on how he's being unjustly uh, prosecuted, uh, on how he was the real winner in 2020, and how everyone is out to get him uh, is, is going to be the message they want to run in in 2024 up against Joe Biden. Yeah, so I, I have been uh, bullish on a Ramaswamy moment, and we sort of had a Ramaswamy moment. He, he, you know, the, the spotlight has has turned to him. And, and various occasions, but he hasn't spiked anywhere. You know, he, he's been third occasionally in national polling, you know, like nine or maybe 11 in a given poll. But now he's he's sunk back to to fourth. You know, it's all very um, jumbled up there in, in some of this latest national polling. But Noah on DeSantis, he hasn't been at 20 or above since I, I think uh, first part of July, his best finding in one of these recent polls, I, I forget which one it was, had him at 18, you know, which is within CNN. CNN, which is within sight of 20. But the, the best case for DeSantis, favorable rating, still high, right there almost with Trump, a little lower. I think CNN and Wall Street Journal both had Trump 75% favorable among Republicans, DeSantis in one of those polls, maybe it's the, the journal poll, was at 70. And you get these, some of these polls occasionally ask first, second choice, you know, actively considering um, those kind of questions. And he's, he's also right up there with Trump. The problem is Trump, you know, I'm making up the exact numbers, you know, it's 56% first choice and 20% second choice. And DeSantis at 16 first, you know, and, and 60 second. But it's, in theory, salvageable so long as people are still open to him. But it's entirely plausible and more likely than not that he, he won't catch on. He'll, he'll never get that first choice. And he'll, he'll end the race you know, well-regarded with people open to him, but, but not, not having made a move. Yeah, very much. And you um, can often ask us percentage chances of who's going to be the nominee. Last chance I had... A, uh, Ron DeSantis at about 35% and, Ron, and Donald Trump at about 45% with the field generally taking up the rest of that chances. So every four and a half rolls of the dice, Trump is the nominee. But that still leaves a lot of other potential for events to occur. And, they will, and we are dependent on exogenous events because Donald Trump isn't campaigning. A lot of people, in fact, Jim just described him as functionally the Republican incumbent. I haven't really talked about what that means because there's a lot to that. Um, means Republicans believe he has a record to run on that speaks for itself. It means there's a party apparatus that's behind him. And we see that in the nightmarish caucus primary situation that Nevada's uh, trying to work itself through and the DeSantis campaign has all but abandoned that state. States like California bending over backwards to uh, give uh, the ultimate winner a majority of the vote all the state's delegates, which is what the Trump campaign wanted. So he's got a lot of advantages going for him, but he's not running a conventional campaign. And if you just, if you were to look at the political landscape over the last six months, you'd see Ron DeSantis collapsing. 
But if you look at over the last month, you see his momentum reversing. And you can visualize that on the Real Clear Politics average, the 538 average, but it's small. But he's no longer declining. In fact, he's regaining ground. Donald Trump is not collapsing, which is what everybody needs to happen. So in order to really functionally run the race that would um, unseat the incumbent is to treat him like an incumbent. It's to run really hard at him, which nobody seems inclined to do. If that directionally is what we're in store for for the rest of the year, Donald Trump's 4.5 rolls of the dice will deliver him the nomination for sure. But there are some green shoots, not really from the DeSantis campaign, but others, including Nikki Haley, who've gotten, who've, who've uh, displayed more sharp elbows when campaigning against the front runner and treating him like the front runner. There was some data I think Republicans had, but when they got into this race, it suggested, and we all saw it in the public, public polls too, that Republican voters didn't evaluate Trump like they would a conventional candidate and you couldn't attack him. So how could you run against him? Well, nobody quite figured that out. But I think there's a little bit more realization um, occurring to the candidates and the people advising them that this is your shot and you have to make the most of it, which means making the case against the incumbent and therefore making the case for yourself as a superior uh, alternative to him in this race. And I do think there's a lot of game left to play, and I do think we're seeing some shifts in momentum. It's not seismic. It's certainly not enough to satisfy Donald Trump's critics on the right, and definitely not enough to satisfy them on the left. But I don't think it's a proper evaluation of the state of play right now to say this thing's totally over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Charlie, that that there's still game to play. That's definitely true. I was looking up the uh, past uh, Iowa trajectories, and, and Mike Huckabee, began to surge in 08 in Iowa, which I think he, he won pretty handily at the end of the day in maybe mid, mid-November. mid Rick Santorum, who won Iowa by the skin of his teeth in 2012, didn't really begin to move until late December. So there's still time for things to happen, but in, in those races, you didn't have the, the front runner um, with this kind of commanding, crushing lead nationally, the way, the way Trump, Trump's ahead. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know whether it's real or whether it's an artifact of Trump being different than everyone else in Republican politics and having been so from the beginning. And if you take it at face value, while there's game left to play, it's over. Because we've been through four indictments, now a debate, the entry of various candidates, the presentation of certain arguments, and nothing's changed, even at this early stage in the summer. On the other hand, a relatively diverse group of observers have made the case that at least where reporters are treading... Trump is not in quite as commanding position as he perhaps seems to be. I'm thinking of Dasha Burns of MSNBC and of Selena Zito of the Washington Examiner. Uh, I forget who it was, but I saw someone left of center the other day saying that they had come away with the same observation. Now, if that is true, then the enormous lead, not the lead, which is clearly there, but the enormous lead could indeed be Mm -hmm. 
the product of what was described as Trump's proto-incumbency rather than of a concrete position that will be impossible to yeah and some and some away. symbolic some some symbolic support right I, I'm with them because I hate all the people who are criticizing him and I'm not going to give you the satisfaction Mr. or Mrs. Polster to tell you I'm with with someone else but but then when but comes time to caucus and primary may it will be something different yeah and maybe and of course hopefully and I have been talking about Donald Trump now for eight of my years on this planet and I have been through many episodes of hope that have been dashed on election night. So I don't know, Rich. I don't know. I, I would just I would just add a hopefully not too Pollyannish caveat that while Trump is different in ways X, Y, and Z, he may also be different in ways A, B, and C. And so trying to look at other candidates in a similar position at a similar point might be less useful, not not useless, but might be less useful than we think. Yeah. So on both sides of that ledger with you personally, Charlie, so you were saying in 16, he's not going to win a single delegate. Obviously, that didn't pan out. But I remember also in 16, I think we were recording this very podcast in your uh, corner office at National Review. And while someone else was, was, was talking, you know, you don't always pay extremely close attention when other people are, are talking. Charlie, you're playing around on that... Um, the road to five thirty. What five thirty eight? That that uh, yeah. <laughs> that map that everyone uses, and and you're playing around, and, and you turned your screen and pointed to me, and it, it had Trump over the top, and 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 I was like, but but that's but look, you gave him Wisconsin, you know, he's, he's not going to win Wisconsin. You're like, ah, you know, this, something like this could happen, and so you're you're prescient about that. So Jim, t- speaking of general elections, we've also, I mean, this has just been consistent now. Uh, You'll have, you know, maybe Biden uh, a little ahead sometimes in national polling, but very often you'll have it tied or Trump a little bit ahead. And the the Wall Street Journal poll had it, if I'm not mistaken, 46-46. It asked people who had a a better record of accomplishment, Biden so far or Trump, and Trump was ahead, I think maybe by eight points on that metric. Doug Schoen's polling outfit I believe had had kind of a similar finding. It had Biden's job approval currently at 44, a little higher than you'll see in some other polls, and had the retrospective Trump job approval, for whatever that's worth, at at 52. So you've had some people beginning to wake up George Stephanopoulos. uh, People are playing a clip of him from over the weekend. Isn't this shocking? You know, it's it's tied. But I, I, I don't think it would be shocking that it was a very close race in 16, a very close race in 20. So why wouldn't we think it would uh, at least be um, not at least be competitive, even if you favor Biden this time around, if it's another matchup? Yeah, look, the strongest argument for the likelihood of Biden winning re-election is the weakness of Donald Trump in a general election and how many voters just don't like him, refuse to vote for him anymore, the uh, turnout impact he will have on the Democratic base, et cetera, et cetera. But the strongest argument that Donald Trump could well win another term is the weakness of Joe Biden. Uh, In a very strange way, there's a symbiotic relationship between these two candidates. They need each other. Uh, They need the flaws of each other to justify their own Mm -hmm. relatively weak situation. And I think if you're Ron DeSantis or any one of the other, you know, non-Trump candidates, 
your life would be easier if Joe Biden was consistently beating Donald Trump in the head-to-head matchups, both in states, in key states and nationwide. And that's not happening. It's it looks like a toss-up. It looks pretty close. You can you know maybe you can just, you know point to to Biden being a bit stronger. And I think there's the 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 theoretical prospect of Trump as the GOP nominee, and then there's the reality of it. And I would not be surprised if once mm-hmm. you know if, if, assuming Trump gets wins the nomination, which looks very likely right now, um, that if you know voters went, oh my God, do we are sure we really want that? And maybe Biden would inch ahead a bit. But Biden has. A lot of serious weaknesses. First and foremost is his age and the fact that he looks 80, 80 going on 81. Uh, the fact that he can't maintain the usual schedule of a president. He certainly is not going to be able to maintain the usual schedule of a presidential candidate. And what's more is that he's running around touting Bidenomics when Americans do not feel good about the economy. Um, the infl- year-over-year inflation rate may be better, but prices are still high for a whole bunch of things in America, including gasoline, including food. Interest rates are going up. Mortgage rates are going up. Like you know, the cost of living in America has gotten really, really expensive since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And the entire Democratic campaign is like to pretend it's not happening and to say, "Ah, oh, unemployment's low. The economy's hot as hell, Jack." And uh, Americans are not. They don't like that. They don't agree with that. They they, they feel like you know Biden is you know, doddering and old and out of touch when he goes off on these rants about it. How great the economy is. So yeah. there's the opportunity for Republicans, and maybe maybe Trump would be able to uh, exploit that for a win. Yeah. So and, and it's it's not just his statements about the economy, but Charlie, it's just things he does. I mean, we had this extraordinary moment yesterday where he just wanders out of this um, Medal of Honor ceremony because you know, I, I guess they they started playing music, so he, he thought that was his cue. Just left before the benediction, you know, and I watched this several times because it was extraordinary to see. And you see one of this, uh, this um, young lady reporter just kind of looking around stunned, you know, sort of, and and she she looks at at Biden walk past her and then she looks back at the ceremony. So wait, wait a minute, (laughs) something doesn't make sense here. And even if this, this kind of thing doesn't get a huge amount of play on the news, it has a real Impact, you know, in, in terms of the disparity of the coverage, I always go to the the infamous Donald Trump walking down the the ramp incident at at West Point, where he had uh, new shoes with slick bottoms and w- was was worried about falling on a ramp, which n- never plays well if you're president of the United States. And there was a 12-hour news cycle devoted to to what terrible degenerative condition he had because of this. Where, whereas this kind of thing, you know, bar- barely makes a, a ripple except for online and on social media, but it, it affects people. 77% of people say Joe Biden is, is too old to serve again. That's a consistent finding across every poll. And you had that, the whatever poll had it at 77 with the general public had 69% of Democrats saying the same thing. I'm going to give you the second answer in a row in which I tried to have it both ways. I think that Donald Trump cannot win a presidential election. I think he's too toxic with traditional middle-class Republican voters and with women to deliver the states. You mentioned me sitting in the corner in my office playing with that 230, whatever it is to win, website. I can't do it. I've played with it for 2024, and I can't find Trump getting over the top. Also, Joe Biden is a terrible president, who has yielded bad results, is disliked, mistrusted, and too old. And not just too old in the round the edges sort of way, but as you say, 
too old in a way that I think almost everyone can see, and that having seen a supermajority, more than three quarters, in fact, of Americans, think is disqualifying. Well, clearly, he is allowed to run and will run if he wants to. But when people say he is too old to be president, what they are saying is he shouldn't be in that job. That's got to have a real effect on people's voting habits. What I don't know, and I totally admit ignorance here, and I admit that I find this difficult, despite my job to discern, is what people who are not committed to a particular ideological position or have a particular pet issue or long-standing habit of voting for a particular party will do when those two problems come into conflict. What happens to independent voters or persuadable voters in a Donald Trump v. Joe Biden election if they go into the booth and they think, I cannot vote for Donald Trump because of his behavior and the way he talks and what happened last uh, year, the year before, after the election, the most important one of those three. But I also don't think that Joe Biden is able to be president. I think he's too old. I think he's past it. I think he's a liability. And I don't like what he's done for the country. I, I don't want to say that we've never had an election where that was true before. I'm sure we have. But I can't remember one quite like that. A lot of people in 2000 said neither candidate was particularly attractive. But what they really meant was everything is great. <laughs> We're at peace. The economy is good. And neither of these guys set me on fire but are competent. That is a very, very different mm -hmm. approach than, well, that guy tried to stage a coup and is under four indictments and sleeps with porn stars while his wife's at home and is repulsive to me in any number of ways. And this guy probably needs electrolysis before he can get through a sentence. I mean, what are we doing? What are we doing? I know you didn't ask me or invite me to complain, but once again, <laughs> what are we doing here? I don't know how this resolves. And I, I find that I'm now pulled apart by horses because I am convinced, Rich. I am utterly epistemologically convinced that Donald Trump cannot win an election. And then sometimes I look mm -hmm. at Joe Biden and I think yeah. the same. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, Trump won because he, he ran against the, the only candidate he, who could uh, lose to him in 16, Hillary Clinton, and he, he could win again in 24 because of the same thing. So, no, while we're uh, speaking of imponderables, let's go to an exit question. One of the reasons that you would discount Trump's relatively strong polling against Biden, Trump being roughly tied with Biden, is things are going to happen that, that would not be favorable to Trump. One of them is that the Democrats will really go after him in a way that they, they ha haven't yet once the campaign really gets going. Another is we're going to have, we can assume, you know, maybe they'll all end up getting delayed, but criminal trials in 2024 in the midst of a campaign. So the exit question to you is if Trump is convicted at one of these trials, who, who knows which one, but he is, he's after that a convicted felon, would that, assuming he's a nominee, would that help him, hurt him, or have no effect in a general election? It would hurt him. And I don't think it's necessary for there to be a conviction for these proceedings to hurt him. I spent the weekend um, with some real prototypical Republican voters who um, echo things that we've been seeing, and I wrote about this for the website, things that we've been seeing in um, focus groups that 
uh, Kirsten Soltis. Kristen Soltis Anderson has been conducting for the New York Times where Republicans are simultaneously catastrophizing the prospect of Joe Biden's re-election and refusing to entertain the prospect of Joe Biden's re-election. It is anathema. They can't imagine it, even if Donald Trump is on the ballot. Because remember, I mean, just think about the pre-pandemic Trump years. Wouldn't everybody take that again? They say to themselves. And the answer is no. Republican, they, they say, well, wouldn't you take the Trump economy? They didn't in 2020 or 2022. Donald Trump had high approval ratings on the economy in 2020. He lost anyway. Democrats got the lion's share of the blame for the economic conditions in 2022, and Republican candidates lost anyway. When it comes to these criminal um, allegations, Republicans are convinced that they're politically motivated. And it seems that voters are as well. They will say as much to pollsters, which I think is probably a heuristic. They, they haven't read the charging documents, and they will become intimately acquainted with the charges against the president and the evidence against the president over the course of these criminal proceedings because they will consume the national discourse. That may, that may help him and probably will help him among Republicans. In fact, it's, it, it may be his entire campaign right now is the criminal proceedings against him. But in the same polls where Americans say, well, yeah, maybe they're probably politically motivated, they also think the prosecution's justified and good and right, which means they think that this is persecution and they're willing to stomach it if it extricates this guy from public life. That level of hostility is not matched on the other side. Joe Biden's job approval ratings are really, really down, mostly because of Democrats. Roughly one in five Democrats are right now willing to tell pollsters, which means it's higher, that they disapprove of the job this guy is doing. After a grueling general election campaign in which every Democratic voter is mobilized, including low enthusiasm voters, will that pertain? No, I don't believe it does. So while I'll never say that Donald Trump can't win a general election again after 2016, the odds against him are pretty significant. So the way I read the, the polling on the prosecutions is I think most people, they're inclined to do two things. They're inclined to believe that any politician accused of something is guilty. <laughs> I think that's kind of the default. And they're inclined to believe like any any proceeding having to do with the politician is political. So I think I think that that's why you see uh, high numbers on, on both those questions. But Jim, the exit is to you. Help hurt, no effect if Trump's a convicted felon before November 2024. It would hurt slightly, but I don't really think that uh, – I think everybody knows darn well what they think of Donald Trump, and I don't think there's much that can happen that will alter people's viewpoints of Donald Trump. Um, I think uh, if Trump is convicted, his critics will be citing it a lot as you know reason one million why he should not be president and why he's a terrible guy and why he's this – menace to American life and democracy and the Constitution and all that. His defenders will insist this is all further the, – the conviction is an evidence that it was a fair, unfair trial and the fact that it was a witch hunt and this is all political, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think there are that many Americans who are undecided or unconvinced or open to persuasion on that, but I don't think it helps um, and I don't think it uh, makes Trump's election any more likely. Uh, in fact, it makes it slightly less likely, but it was already a long shot heading into this. Try. I think it hurts enormously. I think it hurts far more than Jim and Noah seem to, because you can't abstract it away. You have to make a much more direct argument, which is that it's a witch hunt or a banana republic or what you will. One of the ways that Republicans tried to get around much of what Trump 
said and did was to describe it under the umbrella of mean tweets. What about mean tweets? Why do you care so much about mean tweets? Look at the economy. Would you rather have a good economy and mean tweets or a bad economy and nice tweets? This just doesn't fit in that coat. You cannot squeeze it in. If he is a convicted felon, it's not just mean tweets. It's not just bluster. It's not just a typical Donald Trump uncouthness. It's something much more concrete. And I think that there are enormous numbers of voters in America who will say, I just can't do it. So I'm more where Jim is, I, I would say, somewhere around hurt a little or maybe no effect. It, it wouldn't shock me if it's an Access Hollywood type event where it's an obsession and he tanks in the, in the polling for two weeks and then it's just absorbed and he and he bounces right back up. With that, let's hear from our sponsor of this episode, Made in Cookware. We have Made in Frying Pans here in the Lowry Kitchen, and they are awesome. Made in was created by a 100-year-old family business specializing in high-end restaurant supply, works with celebrated chefs and expert artisans to craft elegant, professional-quality cookware for restaurant and home kitchens alike. Your best meals are ahead of you with artisan-made restaurant-quality cookware. Made in's award-winning non-stick cookware has a double-layer, professional-grade non-stick coating. Its stainless clad is nearly indestructible and has unparalleled heat retention making for even heat distribution. We found all this to be emphatically true. Our made-in pans are great to handle. They cook evenly, and very importantly, they are easy to clean. And I say this as a guy who spends a lot of time washing the dishes. So made-in cookware gets our highest recommendation here at the Lowry Household, and especially my wife's recommendation right now. Editors, listeners can get 10% off full-priced items on orders of $100 or more from Made In. For full details, visit madeincookware.com slash editors. That's madeincookware.com slash editors. So speaking of legal matters and Donald Trump, Noah, we have this argument about the 14th Amendment and whether Trump is guilty of insurrection and then therefore is disqualified under the 14th Amendment, you've had uh, various people on the left making this argument. You've had uh, various people on the right who are uh, very committed, never Trumpers, making this argument. How strong do you think this case is? Well, I will say that I'm probably not especially qualified to judge the argument made by William Baud and Michael Stokes Paulson in the Pennsylvania Law Review. Federalist Society members, good conservatives in good standing, arguing that their reading of the 14th Amendment <clears throat> is that figures who engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States or have given aid and comfort to the enemies thereof pertains to Trump, therefore uh, disqualifies him from ballot access, and this would be self-executing, meaning that it would simply occur, courts wouldn't have to weigh in on it, um, it's just a, a fact of nature. And in the real world... That's not true. Um, secretaries of state would be executing it, and the courts would be executing it. And it would be left to a limited number of secretaries of state, um, probably the most uh, political and probably the most democratic, to execute this initiative, which means it would occur only in a handful of states. And it would be a real constitutional crisis. On prudential grounds, it's a non-starter. 
And I have a lot of disagreements with some of my colleagues about the uh, nature of the charges, the criminal allegations against Donald Trump. One of the lines that uh, I take issue with is the idea that this, they, these criminal allegations are attempts to relitigate the impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump on the issue of incitement to insurrection, which he was acquitted of by the U.S. Senate. Uh, I don't think that's true in the criminal cases. It most certainly is true here. This is not most certainly an effort to nullify the Senate's verdict. And I don't see the rationale for it. I, I can see, as anybody with an ounce of foresight can, absolute chaos and uh, a variety of horrible to envision unintended consequences if this were to be pursued by even a single state in the union and Donald Trump was the Republican Party's nominee. It should be a non-starter, even if the arguments made by the Fed, these two Federalist Society members are, are valid and worth considering. On prudential grounds alone, it, is, it should be a non-starter. So, Jim, Andy McCarthy and Dan McLaughlin ha have both looked at this and found this argument Wanting, as, as Dan points out, you look at the history of the, the language here, and it, it's really meant to, to cover engaging in, like, no kidding rebellion. You know, not, not uh, misconduct, not damnable conduct, not impeachable conduct of, of various sorts, and certainly what Trump did after the election was impeachable, but no kidding rebellion, and that just obviously doesn't apply here. Yeah, uh, I agree a great deal with what Andy and Dan have written. Um, if you're going to decide this person cannot run for president and is disqualified from seeking a second term as president because they have engaged in an insurrection, it would be very nice to have, uh, for that figure to have a day in court and for the government to prove that someone participated in insurrection, that this was not just a matter of perception, not just a matter of, you know, paraphrase what, what Trump likes to say, many people are saying, you know, uh, to say it's definitively proven beyond a reasonable doubt or beyond any shadow of a doubt that this person participated in something that qualifies as an insurrection uh, under the 14th Amendment. That hasn't happened. And the other thing is that I understand the frustration of uh, Trump opponents who believe that he was legitimately, completely, totally and fairly defeated at the ballot box in 2020 and their fury that Trump supporters refuse to acknowledge this and that Trump supporters insist that Trump won. But I think if you really believe that Donald Trump is a menace to the country, menace to the Constitution, a threat to American democracy, it is important to beat him at the ballot box. It is important to beat him uh, because the P American people have said no, not to disqualify him on a technicality or on some uh, relatively obscure reading of the rules or the law. Uh, you want to be able to say, no, his ways, his ideas, his philosophy, his attitude towards the Constitution were rejected and not just rejected because some judge somewhere decided this they were, or some secretary of state decided this unilaterally. It's because the American people looked at what he was offering and said, no, we don't want this. We will prefer the alternative even if it's a doddering old man. Um, and that's the way it should be. I think this, that's the only way you drive a stake into these bad ideas is if they are rejected at the ballot box. Um, and so I kind of think in a way that pursuing this whole idea, it's like, it's like wanting a magic wand solution. It's wanting to say, aha, look at this thing we found in the Constitution. We've decided it applies to you. Trump, you're not allowed to run for re-election. 
And now the American left can get on to its true passion, which is denouncing Ron DeSantis. Uh, <laughs> and they can just kind of hand wave away the existence of Donald Trump, but that's not really an option for those of us in the real world. So, Charlie, a point Andy has made repeatedly is that if if there is a case there to be made against Trump in legal terms on insurrection, he, he would have um, it, it would have been made it or made or included in the charges against the various people who were active participants in the violence on January 6th. Most of them haven't been charged with seditious conspiracy, but uh, some of them have. And the actual defenses of, of a lot of these guys is Donald Trump told me to do it. And the Justice Department said, no, no, that, that, that's not true. And that's not an excuse. Uh, so the Justice Department has, his argument has been entirely in the other direction. And then you've had Jack Smith, who obviously, you know, appears very motivated to make cases against Donald Trump and come up with with charges. And he did charge things related to January 6th, but insurrection was not one of them. Yes, I've come over time and with an open mind to the conclusion that this is an example of one weird trick politics. I think that's Dan McLaughlin's phrase. That the originalist and textualist cases in favor of this position are weak. I think the originalist case wouldn't apply here because it wasn't a rebellion or insurrection in the original public meaning of that term. And there are textualist problems. For example, the provision does not mention the president. I don't share Jim's hesitation in using the law, if indeed it applies, to disqualify candidates. I don't think it is necessary to have a rejection at the ballot box for disqualification to be legitimate. For example, I was in favor of Donald Trump's conviction when he was impeached after January 6th. That would not have been a plebiscite that removed him from our politics. It would have been the United States Congress. I think it would have been legitimate. I think that the process that Congress engaged in was clearly laid out in the Constitution. I think it was designed for this sort of behavior. And I think that Donald Trump was guilty of the charges, but he wasn't convicted. And I'm not willing to shoehorn in another provision that does not meet the threshold because of that. So, ex a question to you first, Jim Garrity. Rate the level of your shock at Donald Trump's current political strength from the perspective of the immediate aftermath of the 2020 election, you know, a week or so afterwards, and or the immediate aftermath of the midterms in a week or so afterwards from zero to 10. Zero, you are not even remotely surprised. This is totally what you expected because you're so incredibly politically prescient, of course, or 10, complete, utter, jaw-dropping shock. So to clarify, Rich, I'm rating my level of surprise at Trump's level of Political power? Am I understanding correct, that correct? Correct. How shocked are you at Trump's 
potency, not from the you know, perspective of a month ago no. or what media right. aftermath of his loss in 20 and the Republican disappointment and or the Republican disappointment in the midterms? Um, I would say I, I you know, rate it very low, two, three, four after the election. Uh, I was not surprised that Trump lost his bid for re-election. No, no, sorry. So, sorry, sorry, sorry. So, okay. so fr- from the perspective- You need simpler questions, Yeah, yeah. So, so the week, a week <laughs> after the election- 14 variables in this. <laughs> a week after the election, how done did yeah. you think Trump was such that you would, oh. you're shocked? If, you know, we, we've all kind of yeah. got acclimated over the last six months what's happening. But from the perspective yeah. of that period of time, how shocked would you be at, at how strong he is? If someone had told you then- yeah. You know, okay. he, he's going to be at 60 percent in the polling in, in September of 23. How shocked would you be? Um, after the election, I'd put it about a five, you know, meaning that I, I Trump had lost, but done better than expected. And I figured he'd, you know, he had certainly had no interest in in just going off and enjoying a quiet retirement. Uh, after the midterms, I thought the bad performance of the Trump aligned candidates would hurt him more. So I think you could, you know, ratchet that up. Um, and I'm, I don't want to say befuddled, but I just observe like, you know, the Ameri- the Republican party has an enormous opportunity before it and they're throwing it away by nominating a guy who drives up democratic turnout as high as it can get and who alienates the suburbanites and who alienates the soccer moms. And, you know, like Joe, Joe Biden is, uh, near dead man walking circumstances and there's a good chance Republicans will throw it away by renominating Trump. So you can rate that even higher. I've forgotten the scale from one to uh, seven point three. If that helps, you know. <laughs> Charlie, your level of shock. The entire story of my last eight years writing about politics has been my periodic shock at the continued strength of Donald Trump. I must have thought that he was finished four or five times. I thought after twenty twenty the party would move on. And I thought after the midterms that the party would move on, and it hasn't. Paradoxically, the violence of the shock has diminished over time because there's been a small flag in my mind saying, well, well, he does keep coming back. But I'd still put it at maybe a six or a seven. Noah? I'm pretty darn shocked. Um, If you told me in the very wake of the 2020 election that we'd be here, I'd be very surprised because what voters did in 2020 was execute a surgical strike on Donald Trump and leave the Republican Party intact, indeed gain seats Mm -hmm. in the U.S. House. Mm -hmm. Subsequently, after the Georgia races in 2022, we got all the environmental signals we need that the electorate has no use for Donald Trump or Donald Trump's mimics or the people who... um, mirror his uh, his claims about uh, stolen elections. The environmental signals are about as strong as you could possibly get. And for Republicans to not only reject those signals, regard them as illegitimate and try to force down the mouths of these voters who just won't take it, Trump and his movement, is to me a, a pathology. And yes, yeah, so I find it utterly inexplicable. Number? I'm going to, I mean, from the perspective of November 2020, I'll go seven, seven, eight. Yeah, I'm at an eight or a nine. It's completely shocking. And, and no, what what you said, you know, in, in 
after 2020, you're like, oh, okay, Trump, Trump's going to be gone and the Republican Party is in pretty good shape. You know, picked up house seats in the House. I, I remember, I, I believe it was a conversation with you, Charlie and Jim, like right before a podcast. Well, you know, it wasn't great, but if, if uh, given the alternatives, this is, this is a pretty good outcome. And then it totally, you know, it totally blew up with, with what Trump did afterwards. So there was like, there was a it wasn't a long period, but there was a brief period after the 2020 election where I just thought, he's done, it's over. And the midterms, it was looking awfully grim as well. We kind of forget. I mean, we were talking, will Trump actually run again? You know, there was a school of thought that he wouldn't want to risk losing again. It's, it would be too psychologically difficult for him to take. So he's not going to run. I mean, that was a live question. Uh, for a while, perhaps foolishly, so my level of shock is is quite is quite high. With that, if you want <clears throat> easily shocked punditry, we got it here f- for you at nationalreview.com. But we're asking you to pay for it, people. Don't just take it for free. You got to pay a little something for it and sign up for NR Plus and join tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR Plus. These are readers who value what we do and um, feel a little guilty about taking it for free, about using all these underhanded means, multiple browsers or whatever to try to get around our paywall and just just figure, you know, we, we like reading it. We might as well pay a little bit for it. So I, I urge you, if there's a still voice sometime late at night, uh, a prick of your conscience saying, you know, don't don't just take this content for free if, if you like it. Please heed that voice and sign up for NR+. Won't call it, cost uh, a lot. It's uh, We got great first-time deals running at any given moment. So please sign up today, tomorrow, or sometime in the not-too-distant future. So, Jim Gary, we missed you for a couple weeks on this uh, podcast. You went on a trip to Ukraine. So we want to talk about what's been going on in Ukraine with your experiences there as a jumping off point. So give us a few top line observations and maybe start. How did this trip come about? Who sponsored you? Why were you there? And a couple takeaways. Sure. Uh, And it's good that you're beginning with that, Rich, uh, because it was kind of fascinating to read the comment section and see conspiracy theories being formulated about myself. Uh, You did not send me, and I want to thank you for not deliberately saying, Jim, you have to go to Ukraine. Uh, One of my friends and our longtime readers and a guy I would characterize as a longtime friend of the magazine, if you've been on National Review Cruise, there's a good chance you've met him, Uh, James, who said, uh, who's been running relief efforts out there. Uh, Generally, he will go out to Poland or western parts of Ukraine and collect whatever they need in the Eastern parts, communities closer to the front, diapers, first aid kits, uh, you know, whatever is needed, loading up the car and with a friend of his, they've been driving out. Uh, James characterizes it as saying that the bombing over in the Eastern province or oblasts or provinces is not that bad. It's only in the uh, early morning or late evening. My idea of of acceptable risk might be a little bit different, but uh, he goes over there, makes the deliveries, and comes back and says he hasn't really had any incidents. And I'd written something about Ukraine a couple of months ago, and he's like, you know, James, you, Jim, you really should uh, come out and see it for yourself. It's, it's really kind of amazing to see what the Ukrainian people are able to do in these difficult circumstances. And my initial response was, what, are you crazy? 
this is dangerous. I don't, I've never done anything like war correspondence. Things were very peaceful when I was back in Turkey way back in the day. And uh, he said, look, you're not going to be dodging Russian snipers. You're not going to be anywhere near the front. It's very safe in large chunks of the country. You really should go and do this. And uh, I, I will tell you, if, you know, wife and kids, not big fans of this trip. Um, but I kind of talked him into it. And the way I described it to people was Ukraine is roughly the size of Texas. On any given day, the Ukrainians will drop one to ten bombs uh, in places, mostly in the cities. And uh, so I said, like, look, I'm going to go hide somewhere in the state of Texas. You get five to ten bombs to try to hit me and see how good you feel about your odds of getting me. Um, and so, look, there, there was, you know, a, a certain amount of risk, uh, you know, but not a lot. I, like I said, the western part, you, you'll see the pictures of the bombed out cities and the desperate refugees and all of that is definitely true. But... There are also large chunks of Ukraine where life is, I'm making air quotes as I say this, normal. Uh, life goes on. People still go to work. People still uh, get stuck in traffic jams. People still have, uh, you know, have to figure out how to go on with their lives. Uh, the people I met out there were extraordinary. Uh, the two questions I kept asking them to, you know, to begin these interviews were, how are you doing? And if you have anything you'd like to say to the American people, what would you like to say? First words out of their mouth every single time was, thank you. They are, don't let anyone tell you that the Ukrainians are a bunch of ingrates. They absolutely appreciate everything the U.S. has sent in terms of weapons aid as well as humanitarian aid and financial aid. They know this is what's keeping their war effort going. Um, the, every Ukrainian I spoke to was absolutely 100% confident they're going to win the war. They're not, they don't believe it's going to happen soon. They have no illusions. They know they are in for a long fight. And I would say after talking to everybody from members of parliament to a uh, retired military guy who was training their civilian defense corps up in uh, uh, Kobol to a Supreme Court justice to lots of to refugees, um, all kinds of people, all kinds of walks of life, uh, they will never quit. They, they are going to fight uh, until they've got all of their land back and they are, you know, they, they – uh, um, they, they know they're dependent upon our aid. If we were to cut off aid, which, by the way, I think would be a terrible decision, they would fight with whatever's left. They would fight with whatever Europe was willing to provide them. They will fight with sticks and stones. Uh, all of this talk you see in some of the uh, more populist nationalist corners of, well, why can't the U.S. just get you know Zelensky and Putin to sit down and hash this out? Um, look, the Ukrainians are not going to reach peace with the men who have raped their grandmothers and their granddaughters. And that's not a metaphor. That is actually what's happened here. I spoke to a lot of people who had witnessed and experienced the war crimes in Bucha. Um, I heard descriptions of what bodies look like when they don't have heads. And there's only something at the end of the neck to remind you that it was once a human head. Um, I, I, I had conversations that were very, very difficult with people. They were, they were very happy to tell me. Not happy. They were, they were happy someone was listening. They were happy that someone in, and, you know, my telling them, well, I'm going to write about this and Americans are going to read about this. Uh, they, they were uh, very appreciative of the opportunity to make sure the world did not forget what had happened, not just in Bucha, but also in Irpin and uh, the airport near Hostomel uh, and, and various other parts of the country. Um, of all the places, I probably was there for like you know a little more than a week and in that time probably had 14, 15 air raid alerts. Uh, went down to the shelter a couple of times. I, I got to tell you, the Ukrainians treat it like it's a car alarm going off down the street. They are very used to it. Uh, I think they kind of have, I don't, know, I don't know if this is necessarily a fatalism, but just kind of a sense that if it's going to, bomb's going to fall on their head, it's going to fall on their head. And I should point out that in my entire time there, I did not see any air defense 
uh, anti-aircraft guns going off or, or missiles or, or anything exploding in the sky or anything like that. One night during the drive from Kiev to Odessa, uh, James and I saw a fire off on the horizon. It was in a long line string, so it's possible that was something that was shot down. I described it to somebody else and who said they have wildfires out there too, so it's not necessarily. We were traveling, you know, our driver was going pretty fast and it was night and it was off in the distance, so I can't say with any certainty what I saw there. Uh, I just finally, I would say the last day I was in Odessa, and honestly, that was the most tense city we were there. And it's ironic because it's kind of the, this is their beach resort city. This is their Miami. Uh, there were people who were uh, swimming in the Black Sea. There was not a boat in the water in any direction as far as the eye could see. The Russian Navy is still out there, boats, submarines, God knows how many mines. Um, and so uh, they, they are deeply concerned that at some point the Russians are going to try some sort of amphibious assault or something like that. Um, you may have heard of the Potemkin steps of Odessa. Well, there is a military checkpoint at the top of the steps and at the bottom of the steps and across the middle they've got barbed wire. And oh, by the way, I learned this the hard way, they don't want pedestrians to walk down the street at the bottom. A very polite but very professional uh, Russian sol- uh, I'm sorry, Russian or Ukrainian soldier came along and pointed out to me that I was not supposed to go down this, check my passport, and told me to go back the way I came. So, um, like I said, it was an intense trip. Some very intense good parts, some very intense bad parts. Um, glad I went. Uh, some just exceptionally extraordinary people who are I mean, really, in the fight of their lives, and and some oftentimes, like you'd be surprised how much the Ukrainians laugh. You'd be surprised how much they can, you know, uh, crack jokes like, "Yeah, we're probably not going to be having our bikini beach party in Crimea this summer." You know, like they, they there's a weird um, dark humor about the extraordinarily difficult circumstances they find themselves in. Uh, I went out there liking them. I came back liking them even more. And I got to be honest, I'm thinking a lot about. I hope all of them are still there. Uh, when I return, I intend to go back someday. Don't know when. Probably wait for the see how the war develops. Maybe next year. We'll see how things go. So, Jim, any, any take from journalists, experts you talked to on how the Ukrainian offensive is going? Yeah. I mean, the average civilian there knows about as much as you and I do. Um, if anybody had any secret information, they weren't going to tell me. Um, like I said, I think there was a general... Look, the... the um, uh, th- there's a general sense that this counteroffensive was making slow uh, but steady progress. Um, I came back before this latest uh, report of them breaking through the lines. Um, I guess I don't think anyone thinks they're going to win quickly. Uh, the guy who was training the kind of the civilian defense corps said he thought the war would go about three or four years just based on historical patterns, that it takes that long for there to be a definitive win or loss for one side or the other, looking at history, World War II, things like that. So I don't think anyone has any illusions. I, I don't think anyone thinks that they're about to win quickly. And I also, like, while I think Ukraine is winning the war, I also think their victories are coming at great cost. Uh, I mentioned being up at the border near Belarus in a s- small city called uh, Kobol. And it is probably a population, probably about 77,000 people. So like Oshkosh, Wisconsin, Centerville, Virginia. This is not, not a big city. Uh, and they've already buried uh, 47 men. Uh, you know, some of that was from... Uh, fighting in the oblasts back to 2014. But I'd say most, probably 40 of those 47 uh, were from the beginning of the invasion in February 2022. Um, and so it just gives you a sense. This is this is not going to be like Iraq or Afghanistan to them. This is going to be like Vietnam or World War II to the Ukrainians. And so I, you know, you, Ukraine, there, there's reason for confidence in Ukraine, but God, this is just going to, co- you know, this is going to cost them a lot in blood and treasure. 
So Noah, there have been reports of some some progress in in recent days, but I was listening to Aaron McLean's School of War podcast, which I've mentioned before, and I recommend to anyone who has an interest in military affairs. And he was talking to an expert. I, I forget his name or where he was from, but uh, he, he was saying, this is a couple of weeks ago, you just have to rate the counteroffensive as a failure. The Russians have developed this, you know, it's not sophisticated or new, but this defense in depth where you have, you know, a, a defensive line that has three layers, you know, massive minefields and ditches and anti-personnel mines and tank obstacles, you know, 25 miles wide in some places. And this is just very difficult uh, to deal with, especially when you're the Ukrainians and and you don't have uh, air superiority and you don't necessarily have all the ammunition you need, although we've given them a lot. And we'll see what what comes of this reported uh, breach in in the Russian lines. But uh, certainly it's, um, if nothing else is true, this this has been a, a grinding counteroffensive. I think that's fair. I think it's also far too early to prejudge the offensive as a failure, considering, A, that we're in the middle of it, and it's going to continue for quite some time, and B, that we are seeing successes on the ground, not just in this one particular section of the of the front in Zaporizhia, but around the whole front lines, which is, you know, stretches the whole length of the country and then up north to the Russian border. Um, they breached the uh, first line of defense in this particular sector, which is the hardest to get to, the most heavily manned. And then they breached secondary lines of defense, um, approaching this one town, which is a transportation hub. And once you get, the, the idea is once you breach these lines of defense, you have an open backfield. And you can really make some progress there. And it's not super easy to, first of all, there are no mines back there because Russians have to retreat and retrench too. Uh, and it's not so easy to remine, reseed the minefields. And you can do it like just firing mines off like artillery, but it's not, it's not something that you can just quickly rebuild. If the offensive were to stall uh, at this point and Ukrainians have to sit there in the, throughout the winter and watch Russians rebuild these lines of defenses, I think you can absolutely say that the, the counteroffensive would have failed. Indeed, I've written something very similar for the magazine uh, for how you prejudge or how you would judge the success of these offensive preparations. And there's quite a lot that you can say about the Biden administration and its failure to properly equip um, as quickly and with as much um, generosity as, as Ukrainians requested, which probably would have contributed to a little bit more momentum than we've seen uh, over the last couple of weeks. But we are seeing momentum. And once you forward position this artillery in these, in these areas that you take past these lines of defense, that artillery can target all the way to the Azov coast, which makes it very difficult to maintain, not impossible, because you have to man these positions, but very difficult to maintain the land bridge that Russia has created between uh, the Federation proper and Crimea. The objective, the core objective is this, of this counteroffensive is to break the land bridge, force Russians to use the Kerch Strait Bridge to resupply Crimea, which Ukraine has demonstrated routinely that it can hit and disable. And you put the Russians in an untenable position in Crimea. That is not off the table. I don't think any military analyst would look at the state of play on the ground and say that that's off the table. So to judge this a, a failure, with all respect, uh, I think is just premature. All right, so let's go to the exit question. Jim Garrity, 
and I, th- I think Jim maybe previewed your answer here, but who will win the Ukraine war, Ukraine or Russia? Um, I think Ukraine is going to end up winning at minimum a big chunk of its territory back. I don't know if it'll be every last inch. Um, I think that they will have, when all is said and done, and if and when there's a lasting peace, I think the Ukrainians will have demonstrated that they are exceptionally tenacious fighters who can punch well above their weight, and they will have set back the Russian war machine and the Russian military for a generation. Um, whether that means, like I said, whether that means getting Crimea back, whether that, they're convinced they're going to do this. Uh, I, I have, I do not doubt the enormity of the challenge before them. Um, but like I said, I also worry about what the long-term, what, what's going to be left of Ukraine, Ukraine's young men after this, uh, that the war is taking an enormous toll on their societies. And, uh, uh, you know, eventually a win, but, you know, victory and liberation and independence will be maintained at a great cost of blood and treasure. Noah. Well, I will say Russia has already lost on its own terms. Its strategic objectives that it set out to achieve in February of 2022 are not achievable and will not be achieved. Uh, who wins is a different question, and it's a much more subjective analysis unless we assume that either uh, Ukraine totally collapses or the regime in Moscow dissolves. And I don't think either of those are anything you can plan on. But Russia has already lost on its terms. The question is um, what the settlement is and to what extent it resembles a frozen conflict of the sort that Russia thaws at its will and would tie up Western attention, Western material in ways that we find disadvantageous. That's the open question. Charlie. I agree with what Noah said about Russia losing, and I also agree with what he said about the risk of this becoming a thawed conflict that can be reopened up. I Therefore, I suppose think that Ukraine is going to win. I don't want to sound coy or saccharine when I say this, but it's not a Pyrrhic victory, but it will be a victory that is harsh and unbelievably regrettable and illustrates why you do not want terrible belligerent dictatorships invading their neighbors. If you think about it in the American context, if we were invaded and we managed to repel the invaders after a number of years, we would consider that a victory, even if we had lost an awful lot of people in the process. But if we had to give that country a couple of states, which seems plausible as an analogy for what will happen territorially in Ukraine, we wouldn't consider it a full victory. Mm-hmm. And you know, I I think that this is going to underscore how difficult it is to live in a world with evil because you never truly win. You prevail. That's Perhaps that's the word I want. Ukraine is going to prevail here, but the... You know, the the cheap moral way in which this is discussed, I think, sometimes misses the the sheer horror of it. And I'm grateful to Jim's exposition because he's humanized it uh, rather than uh, abstracted it out into numbers and territory and terms of art. So I'm going to say no one's going to win. Russia is not going to sweep through and take all of Ukraine, which was its initial objective in Ukraine is not going to win all of its territory back. It's going to survive as a state, which is a kind of victory, but at an enormous 
cost. And just the problem here is Russia is not going away. Russia has more mass. The Russia way of war, it's blunderbuss and depends on mass. And, you know, absent uh, you know, something happening in, in Moscow, just just I don't I don't see Putin relenting. So even if you get some sort of deal or armistice, which I, I'm hoping happens sooner rather than later in the most favorable terms possible to Ukraine, it's uh, e- easily could start up again. So I, maybe I'm, I'm evading my own question, but I, I say no one wins with that. Let's hit a few other things, a few lighter things before we go. Jim, you are looking forward and have good cause as a Jets fan. For, for once and for the first time in a very long time to look forward to the start of the NFL season. We're recording on Wednesday because we had the Monday holiday. So we're, what, what, about 36 hours from the start of the season? Yes, and uh, I'm already looking forward to Thursday night. Chiefs-Lions should be a good game. But yeah, optimism is a really strange feeling for a <laughs> Jets fan. And uh, we have not had some terrible... Uh, injury to Aaron Rodgers or Sauce Gardner or Garrett Wilson or any of the other key players for the Jets this year. Um, they they have gone out in addition to having Brees Hall. They went out and got Dalvin Cook. They seem stacked. Everybody seems reasonably healthy on the offensive line. That's the sound of me knocking on wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, feeling pretty good about things. And look, after a look, any team can have a bad decade and miss the playoffs <laughs> for an entire decade which actually in the NFL is really hard to do because you get high draft picks and it's designed towards parity. Um, look, I'm not going to make any predictions for Monday night against Buffalo. Just looking forward to the season, excited, and uh, yeah. You know, this should good, be a great— Real, foot, real football is here again. That should be a great Monday night game. And I do not follow the, the Jets closely, but your fellow Jets fan and the uh, chatter before recording last week was saying, you know, you take potentially a number one defense that the Jets have and you slot in— Aaron Rodgers, and if he's anything like he's had had been uh, has been, that that should be a pretty good, pretty good equation. All the pieces are there. You just got to watch the offensive line. That's your only potential. <laughs> you're going weak to spot. see an anvil fall from the sky at some point. You know something terrible is going to happen. <laughs> so Noah, you got a big big birthday month here. It's birthday month in the Rothman household. September is all kiddo birthdays. September 2nd is my youngest, September 30th is my oldest, and somewhere in the middle there is a party that the two of them share because we're not going to do two of these things in a month. And uh, yes, it has begun. But one of them is behind us. We're one-third of the way through this thing. We're going to make it, but it's a slog going through it. It's lovely. The kids have have a blast, and we enjoy it too, of course. Uh, But it's a production, and uh, we're all drafted into it. Awesome. Well, enjoy. And Charlie... Speaking of football, you're heading to Indianapolis to catch the Jaguars opener against the Colts. I just couldn't wait until week two when the Chiefs come here and I shall get to use my season tickets for the first time. So I am going on a whirlwind trip to Indianapolis, fly in, see the game, fly out. Hopefully they will get the win, but you never know. So over Labor Day weekend, I went and saw FDR's home at Hyde Park. And I'm not a huge FDR guy, obviously not a fan of his domestic policy during the Depression, but truly uh, extraordinary world historical 
leader of the United States during World War II. And the thing I came away with, I know a little bit about FDR, but I'm by no means a student of, of FDR, was just, you know, we, we, we value authenticity so much these days. It just just uh, being there in, in that house just brought home the courage of artifice in certain, certain circumstances. FDR obviously struck by polio, tr- just tragic, uh, heartbreaking, a story and people then, you know, would they'd make assumptions about you if you're in a, in a wheelchair. So it was something to hide. You know, there were just uh, apparently, according to this a tour guide, four existing uh, um, pictures of, of FDR in a, in a wheelchair. And uh, they're, they're all candid shots by, by family or friends. And just the links he, he went to to hide the extent of his disability. He'd meet with people in his study in the home, and there was a ramp that would be a temporary ramp that you'd he'd come down in the wheelchair into his study, which was a little bit lower than the rest of the first floor of the house. They'd pick him up, they'd put him a chair at a chair at his desk. He'd cross his legs, he'd fiddle with his stamp collection. He was a big stamp collector, or you know, um, r- you know, work on a letter or something. And then the visitor would come in. And, you know, he was such a bubbly personality. Churchill, Churchill compared being around him to famously, you know, to, to taking a, a glass of champagne. You, you wouldn't notice that he didn't stand and, and shake your hand. And he would talk to you like, you know, n- nothing happened. Everything was normal for 30 minutes because that's all it could take because it was so painful. And then the guests would be, be ushered out. And this would happen again and again and again. His, his staff would take his shoes and rub it in the dirt and the mud outside to convince people that he'd, he'd been walking around outside. He'd give speeches at podiums that had to be bolted to the floor so he could uh, hold himself up with his hands, couldn't make any uh, hand gestures, required incredible strength, stamina, determination, pain. He'd occasionally um, manage uh, um, a, a, a kind of walk in, in braces, holding a railing or a cane in one hand and with his um, other hand on the, the arm very often of his son. His son uh, would, would come away with his arm black and blue because uh, it required so much pressure. So really an extraordinary, extraordinary thing to, um, and, and just, just being there kind of kind of uh, brings, brings home um, the, the, as I say, the extraordinary uh, effort and courage in this respect. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? Well, Rich, you can take a victory lap. Uh, my selection for this week is your syndicated column, No, We Aren't Rome. Uh, it is entirely possible that my recent travels have me feeling particularly appreciative of our blessings here in the United States of America. And I do think that there is this tone of public discourse, including quite a few folks on the right, who who almost relish talking about how bad things have gotten and how we're in a decaying society, we're decadent, we're in decline. And uh, your column lays out uh, some recent comparisons between the U.S. and the collapse of the Roman Empire really don't fit. They really don't align. The circumstances are very, very different. And then while it's very useful to study history, not everything that happens in history is a perfect metaphor or comparison to what's going on right now. And uh, that perspective is sorely needed in our discourse, I think. Thanks so much, Jim Noah. I'm going to do Jim's quick hit reminding us that the the irrelevant United Nations meets this week. A um, worthless talk shop on Turtle Bay that exists only to legitimize 
the world's worst actors, its worst regimes, provide them with platforms in New York City they don't deserve. Uh, Jim's, uh, what gave Jim the impetus to write about this is the, is how the United Nations currently exists now to um, erode the uh, so-called diplomatic isolation that Russia is experiencing as a result of its war of conquest in Ukraine. And he didn't even touch on the General Assembly, um, which is itself anathema and deserves, uh, as John Bolton uh, said, helpfully to uh, have uh, the first uh, last couple of floors uh, eliminated, which would improve things dramatically mm-hmm. in the United Nations. Charlie? I'm going to take Jack Butler's two posts on the book Modern Times by Paul Johnson, which he's been reading and then writing about, first in a piece titled How Iron-Willed Monsters Convulse Modern Times, and then again with more wisdom from Modern Times, a great reminder to read a great book and benefit from its timeless wisdom and observation that history repeats and repeats and repeats. So who was pointing out, with Jim, was it you who was pointing out it's hard to get a copy now? It's out of print? That was uh, shortly after Paul Johnson passed away. Uh, I went to get one. And yeah, I had to get one from a used bookstore on Amazon. Yeah, it's truly an extraordinary book. So I'm going to return Jim's favor and select, as aforementioned, Ukraine dispatches. What, what Jim does every morning is truly extraordinary. I've seen him in action at a uh, <laughs> breakfast place in Memphis when we were both there for, for Freedom Fest, but it's, it's not easy to write on the road. I mean, this is true when you're co- covering campaigns. You know, you have to drive somewhere, you witness something, then you got to drive back or go to your next destination. And before you know it, you know, it's, a, it's a, uh, 11 p.m., you know, and you're tired and you don't want to write for the next morning or you figure you'll get up early and it's really hard or whatever. But that, that must have uh, been even harder over where, where Jim was uh, in Ukraine. And these were just invariably really thoughtful. Uh, colorful, uh, substantive dispatches. So hats off to you, Jim. And that's it for us. You've been listening to a National You podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or countless game without the express written permission of National You magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Jim. Thanks to Maiden Cookware. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.